0: Welcome to another episode of "Ain't It Scary?" with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts, on Evergreen Podcasts Network. I'm the titular Sean,
1: and I'm the very titular Carrie.
0: It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre, and tries to find an answer. Hello, Caroline. Hi. We are in part two of our uh, two-part series on Hannibal, the greatest boogeyman of the Roman Empire.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: At uh, at. I'm not going to say the height of its powers, because this is still kind of the time when Rome's expanding in the 200s BC. But Hannibal would cast a shadow that would uh, strike fear in the hearts of Romans for generations to come. And in this episode, we're really going to find out why. Uh, Last episode was a lot of... well, the first half of the last episode, almost. We had to set up with the First Punic War and Hannibal's dad and uh, him kind of handing down the mantle of revenge against the Romans down to his son... Um, they spent some some years fighting in Spain for a while, and then uh, Hannibal finally took his army and marched across uh, the Alps with 30 elephants, remember?
1: I couldn't forget, even if I tried. Uh,
0: to go and threaten the Romans directly at the start of the Second Punic War. Uh, when we last left you, at the end of last week's episode, um, as soon as Hannibal came down out of the Alps, he basically lured a one of the Roman consuls for the year, into a cavalry clash that he whooped his ass in. And uh, tribes of local Gauls, who were allied to the Romans, but that really means the Romans had come and kicked their asses so much that they were just like, fine. Imm- yeah,
1: it's not really allied, it's more just overtaken.
0: Owned by, you know, mm-hmm. kind of. But uh, they immediately started flipping and uh, swearing their allegiance to Hannibal. Some of the, these uh, men marked their... Kind of changeover by marching into Hannibal's camp and offering him the heads of the Roman officers they had slain overnight. So it's a nice and when
1: chocolate and diamonds don't say it.
0: Hey, Valentine's Day just passed. If you missed the occasion to give that special someone a uh, you know a bouquet of roses, a box of chocolates, uh, a nice dinner, any of the the normal accoutrement, maybe it's not too late to get some Roman heads in there.
1: Everyone likes a little head on Valentine's Day.
0: Amen uh, So meanwhile the defeated consul Publius Scipio Remember his teenaged, his 16 year old son Also named Publius Scipio Had to come in at the last second And save his life during that cavalry clash
1: mm-hmm.
0: He was waiting for reinforcements now And his colleague for the year A guy named Sempronius uh, Had been down in Sicily Because they were going to organize An invasion there of Africa To bring the, bring the war to a quick end but now with Hannibal raging through uh, you know, northern Italy, that just wasn't going to happen. And Sempronius was being called up to, to come and lend a hand. And uh, so Scipio just had to wait for a little while. But in December... The consuls joined forces to offer Hannibal a decisive battle that they hoped would uh, drive him out of Italy for good. And this is how ancient wars went. You would kind of maneuver your armies around each other until you could lure the other side into a big old battle where you could kill enough of their people, if you won, that um, they wouldn't be able to keep fighting anymore. And then they would do peace uh, negotiations.
1: So this is sort of the WWE Smackdown.
0: It is a war. Uh, it's intended to be for both sides. Yeah, and the idea—I mean, most of these wars would end up having a couple of really big set-piece battles, mm-hmm. and uh, then they'd be over because you'd—you'd already the losing side had already lost too many guys. Mm-hmm. Now, in this case, Hannibal had made camp on a wide-open uh, marshy plain near the Trebia River, and it looked to the consuls like he wasn't going to be able to pull any of his usual tricks. He was already known to be a pretty tricksy general. And uh, Hannibal's army had, by this time, gotten up to about 29,000 cavalry, uh, 29,000 infantry, walking walkin guys, and 11,000... 000- walking guys? Yeah. And 11,000... Ca- I'm a... part of the infantry. I'm a walking here guy. <laughs> uh, and 11,000 cavalry. Horse guys. Yeah, thank you. And that now included ten to 15,000 new Gauls who had joined his cause already. Mm-hmm. So for the Romans, they figured it was really important to make that big statement victory here before Hannibal picked up any more allies. Because mm-hmm. for the moment, at least with both their armies together, they were each commanding four legions, which is a lot more people than than an army would have. But But they outnumbered him, at least in foot guys.
1: Right, but if everyone that Rome had overtaken in the nearby area defected to hannibal's side they would be screwed
0: yeah and especially if it started to spread down into the peninsula and middle and lower italy started to to go over to hannibal's side that's when you're really in trouble because um those weren't people the romans considered barbarians those were like long-time allies and quote civilized people which means they acted like romans
1: just a bunch of italians
0: (laughs) i mean not exactly
1: no? On the peninsula? Was that the boot? Oh, no. they
0: no, Yeah, they were a bunch of Italians, but they weren't, like... I don't think they'd be recognizable as modern Italians. No, there'd be no ghoul involved. <laughs> I just mean ethnicity. It doesn't matter. So the Romans probably had 30,000 heavy infantry alone here. Not counting those little skirmishy guys with the javelins we talked about last week. Not counting horsemen. Just... Heavy infantry with armor and shields. and Well, let's talk about the soldiers, actually. You're a Roman soldier, Carrie. Am I? In this thought exercise, you're, you're going to have to be a Roman soldier. All right. I think I'm going to kill myself. Well, you certainly didn't ask to be here. You were chosen by levy. So all male citizens of the Republic are uh, required by law to serve in the... Um, army at some point, if they, ha- if you know, n- n- the need arises, basically, mm-hmm. which means none of them are professional soldiers; they're all just dudes, and most of them, in this case, have probably never fought before. Maybe they have, but most of them haven't. Um, you can be asked to serve starting in your late teens, all the way up till about fifty. Yikes! And if you're, depending on how much money you have and your family has, that that's what sort of determines where you go in the army. So really rich people, if you were a member of the equestrian class, and they were called that literally because they were just the guys who were rich enough to have horses, Mm -hmm. Um, or maybe even if you were the son of a senator who was looking to make a political name for yourself and run for office a little later, uh, you were going to go join the cavalry. Mm -hmm. And they got full kind of bronze armor. Sometimes they had this linen body armor underneath that was actually really good at stopping arrows. Uh, They had a big round shield and a sword and a spear and a couple of javelins. Uh, really well-equipped, heavy kind of cavalry. Uh, And then on the other end of the spectrum, if you couldn't afford any equipment, you were one of those, you weren't off the hook. You know, you still have to fight, Mm -hmm. but but you're going to be one of those skirmishers we talked about last week. So you have light or no armor, but you do have a little tiny round shield. Maybe if you're lucky, you get a helmet. And uh, they, they would, I guess, wear animal skins a lot of the time. Like, oh, I've got a little wolf head on my head. You know, and that was so their commanders could tell the different guys apart like a little, you know, piece of flair. Mm-hmm. Um, but most male, well, most citizens served in the heavy infantry, the real sort of infantry infantry that marched forward and did the, the clashing with the shields thing, um, as long as they could buy the equipment. So they had to buy the uh, bronze helmet.
1: So they made you be in the army and you had to pay your way?
0: Yeah. That's crazy. They couldn't, yeah, well, yeah. And and if you if you couldn't pay for anything, then you're just gonna be running out at the beginning of the battle and throwing about twelve of these javelins. God. Um but you would have a bronze helmet that had a big tall crest on top that was meant to make you you know more intimidating.
1: Like
0: feathers. Yeah. Oh look at these eight foot tall, feathered men coming towards us.
1: Yeah, it's me at Dragcon with my mom. <laughs> <laughs> it
0: is it is a little bit fabulous. Um, they had an armored chest plate and then, um, maybe the only other armor you might have would be a greave on your left leg, mm. just the left one to protect your left calf. Why? Um, because the way you were going to stand in the battle, and we'll talk about what this experience was like, but, um, that's the leg that's forward. So it's the one that's most likely to get stabbed and slashed by guys in the other line. Hmm. Your other leg's back behind your shield most of the time. That's so your
1: budget leg.
0: That yes, exactly. If you nobody nobody has the money to be to be just splashing on a uh, a grieve on the other leg. Mm-hmm. And the reason your left foot was forward because is because the left was the side that you held your scutum. <laughs> Pardon. Your scutum was your uh, four foot long, two foot wide body shield.
1: How heavy was that?
0: Uh, 22 pounds. Oh my God, that's heavier than Poe. It is heavier than Poe, and you have to carry him on your left arm all day, just carrying the full weight of that 22 pounds. Sounds like my normal life. <laughs> he does make us carry him around increasingly, but not all day.
1: He is like a king.
0: Um, all of the Roman soldiers, for the most part, had a gladius, which was a short kind of thrusting sword. Mm-hmm. Not not great for, for cuts, more you're doing this with it, it was pointed you're at the damage. end. doing damage. Yeah, but you're jabbing. Yeah. And they also carried the pilum, which was a, a heavy javelin. We talked about javelins.
1: How, wait, they're carrying a javelin, a sword, and a shield?
0: Yeah, well, the sword will be in a scabbard at your hip, right, until after you throw your javelins. Your javelins oh, so that's
1: kind of like a one... One pump chump. Oh, yeah. <laughs> one, one shot and you're done.
0: Yeah, we'll talk about it. But before they close to actually start fighting, they'll throw one or two of these javelins into mm-hmm. the army. and Just hope to hit somebody. Mm-hmm. And hope not to get hit by the ones that are coming back.
1: I guess you have to be, like, taught how to do this properly. Because just imagining that they're probably pretty heavy, I don't know. And how far away are they? Like... I can't imagine javelins connecting very often, but uh, maybe the, they do.
0: These javelins, so picture you're hurling uh, four feet of wood with two feet of iron shaft on top of that, and at the end of the two feet of iron shaft is just a very small pyramid-shaped point. hmm Um, it was, I guess, really good at, like, puncturing shields and, and armor, even. hmm Um...
1: Right. And you have that one of those things stuck in your shield. That's going to be a pain in the ass because it's four feet long.
0: Well, exactly. It's when it's hard to pull out because it's sort of barbed. Mm -hmm. And uh, more often than not, you're going to have to throw that shield away. And then the next javelin is just going to go through your chest. Why not just like
1: cut the javelin like off? Because half of it's made of
0: wood, even more than half. Well, yeah, but now you're hacking at it with your sword, and you have to lean over your shield to do that. And guess what? You've been stabbed a hundred times. Okay. Uh, you're behind your shield at all times when you're when you're in an ancient battle. And if you're not behind your shield, you're going to be dead.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And the way the battles went is typically like this. First, we talked about this last week, but the light infantry, those skirmishy guys... Didn't have enough money. He's wearing animal skin and he's got some javelins. Uh, they would run out ahead of the front lines to throw javelins and and some of them there'd be slingers sometimes, not usually archers in this time and place. Maybe a couple archers, but you'd have guys uh, slinging stones which could go hundreds of feet. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about like maybe a picture a fist sized chunk of rock.
1: I feel like that would be my job.
0: So and they'll whip it around like like David and Goliath, you like, know?
1: Yeah.
0: With a leather thong or something. And and just, if, if, if one of these stones hits you in the head, it will kill you, you yeah. know. Um, so there's guys slinging stones, there's guys throwing javelins. And if one, I mean, the idea, the ideal is if one side can drive the other side's, like, little javelin and slinger guys away, then they can run up to the other line and start maybe inflicting some casualties on all of those real infantry you know the armored guys maybe you can start killing some of them with your javelins and your sling stones and by the way our source for this episode is uh can i hannibal's greatest victory
1: c-a-n-n-a-e yes it's not like c-a-n-i question mark like <laughs> can kind of shrugging on the cover
0: yeah no can i uh hannibal's greatest victory and it's by adrian goldsworthy it's actually the reason we're doing this episode in a way because i read it as carrie pointed out on our honeymoon
1: Mm-hmm. I just I have such sense memories of sitting on the porch in Jamaica on our postponed honeymoon with you and you're reading about um, this devastating battle and telling me things that I'm like, Sean, we're about to go to our nice little dinner <laughs> by the water. Yeah, we're we'll going to the
0: Indian place tonight. <laughs>
1: yeah, like I don't want to hear about this right now.
0: Yeah. Um, so, we, so acknowledgements to Mr. Goldsworthy, because uh, uh, I've been thinking about doing this episode since we started the podcast because mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I should also throw a little bit of credit to Dan Carlin, who has a great uh, Punic Nightmares episode of Hardcore History. Mm-hmm. And um, very recently, after I started researching this episode, um, a great YouTube channel, Oversimplified, did a um, well, started a second Punic War series, and that's good, too. So if you want to see any of this kind of visualized, if this is interesting to you, um, any of those are, are are fantastic to check out, and I recommend them. But Adrian Goldsworthy says, uh, these skirmish clashes were almost never decisive.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: because, he says, a minority of soldiers went close to the enemy and sought to make use of their weapons as effectively as possible, inflicting most, if not, all of the casualties. The majority did enough to appear eager, periodically going forward to perhaps within extreme range of the enemy and throwing or shooting a missile, but being more concerned to avoid being hit themselves than to harm the enemy. A minority probably stayed as far in the rear as possible, rarely if ever coming within range. And you'll see this at all phases of the battle. Just all the evidence suggests that both in modern firefights and in ancient fighting with edged weapons, a lot of the guys did not want to be there. Yeah. And spent a lot of their time not giving it their all, you know, so it's a a small minority of the guys doing a lot of the really, really hard fighting, or at least hard killing, the dying anyone can do.
1: Mm -hmm. Doing the job they're paid for.
0: Right. (laughs) Um, So the skirmishers would do their thing for a while, and usually to no great effect. They usually wouldn't even inflict many casualties on each other. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, But eventually, whether one side or the other broke or the skirmishers just get tired, uh, eventually the main infantry lines behind them are ordered forward uh, and they'll advance. The Romans usually organized their line into groups of 100 guys. And they would organize those 100 guy groups into maybe 20 across and five deep. uh, And then you'd have three lines of these that were kind of staggered. So the gaps were uh, covered up. And that's how they marched it. You didn't want it to be one big mess of guys because then it's a mess of guys and you can't go. Those guys need to go over there because there's no those guys anymore. It's just a crowd. Right. The Carthaginians had a really different army. Um, There was no mandatory military service for people who lived in Carthage. So there were no Carthaginian citizens basically in the army. But they were all professionals, the ones that were in the army. Exactly right, Carrie. As you pointed out, this this ancient warfare stuff takes a lot of training and practice to be good at.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and physical fitness, obviously. And, and Rome
1: pretty much figured we could just throw bodies at the problem and that'll always win the day.
0: They figured we have to. And, you know, I mean, what we have a lot of here in Italy is bodies. Um, we don't have a lot of trained soldiers. In fact, we don't have any. Um yeah, so the Carthaginians would have to step in to defend the city if it was under direct threat, but that was the only time they ever had to serve, and for that reason, they were really bad soldiers when they had to be soldiers. Um, but yeah, these Romans... The Romans. No, the, I'm saying the Carthaginians.
1: Oh, Carthaginian citizens.
0: Yeah, would never have to fight yes. unless, like, actual Carthage was being invaded. Right. Um, but the
1: guys who are fighting are real good at it.
0: Yes. Because they're for, they're recruited, they're professional soldiers, yeah, who are recruited from um, North Africa and they now got Spain. A lot of
1: mercenaries in the mix.
0: They just got a bunch of Gallic uh, tribesmen to, to join their cause, and those guys are pretty good fighters. Um, and thirty elephants, Sean. And he still has thirty elephants. We'll talk about the elephants.
1: I know we will.
0: Um, the Romans always call these people who were fighting for the Carthaginians mercenaries, and they were professional uh, paid troops. But that doesn't mean they were like, that makes it sound like they're they're going to switch over at the drop of a hat or they're less loyal or, um, but really a lot of these guys, especially the African troops, but even now a lot of the Spanish troops have been fighting with Hannibal and with Hannibal's father for years and years and being really rich, richly rewarded because of it.
1: They got skin in the game.
0: Yeah. So they are actually fanatically loyal. A lot of them. And uh, as you point out, Carrie, really well-trained and really well-practiced at killing people and taking land, cities, and, and booty. I know. That just means stuff. But they were taking, I know you know, booty as well. So, uh, anyway, they were solid guys. And as he lined up near the Trebia River, Hannibal had 8,000 new Gaul friends uh, forming the center of his infantry line.
1: Let's go, Gaul friends. (laughs)
0: Let's go, Gauls. (laughs) So so that's what the Romans see as they're forming up at this river. In the center of Hannibal's army are these uh, Gauls. Long hair, uh, big, thick beards. Uh, The Romans saw them as dirty and uncombed. um, And... especially scary to be fighting to be facing them across the battlefield um these guys similar to the romans had shields and swords um their swords were actually a lot of them didn't have points on the end they were just for like big overhand cuts Oof. and they wore pants which the romans were already kind of like that's barbaric that's weird
1: wearing pants yeah instead of what
0: like a like a tunic
1: Why are pants barbaric?
0: Well, you want to. I think the Romans just liked a uh, to quote J.K. Rowling, a nice, healthy breeze around their privates. Thank you very much.
1: Okay. It's one of
0: the only thing J.K. Rowling things you can you can quote. You certainly could, Sean. And here you have. So yeah, they thought it was a little weird that the Gauls wore pants, and when they fought, they they did it shirtless. So not only not only do they not have armor, but you've got a bunch of guys in leather pants with no shirts. Um, the Roman, I think some of them may have painted their faces and things like that, depending on the the tribe, and just screaming their their battle cries as you line up across from them. Eight thousand of them. Wow! And they're probably like just big guys. It's it's like a biker gang. It's yeah. like an eight thousand men. We're watching Sons of Anarchy right now, so it's <laughs> it's like eight thousand opies. Oh, opie. Shirtless are are lining up across the the hill with with their big flat swords.
1: Don't threaten me with a good time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, so on the other, on the sides were his African and Spanish veterans, the really good infantry. Mm-hmm. And then on the outside of them, 15 elephants this time on each side. Hannibal was finally getting the elephants involved.
1: That's a, that's what they call a baker's dozen of
0: elephants. That is, you, you need, you need extras because it's elephants or? Yes. Because a baker's dozen is usually 13. <laughs> wow well. Okay. No, I, I like it. I like the math.
1: Of elephants, it's 15.
0: Um, and that's about fifth We don't know exactly how many he had, right? But a bunch of elephants on each side.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and then his about 11,000 cavalry were on the wings outside of them. Wow. And um, I know the Romans picked this spot because they thought, big open plain, Hannibal can't do any dirty tricks. But they didn't pick it very well, and they really didn't scout it very well on the morning of the battle. Uh, Because the night before, Hannibal had sent his younger brother Mago with a thousand infantry, walking guys, walking here guys, and a thousand cavalry and had them hide in a drainage ditch. That's a weird way to put it. Like a a dry riverbed. Like the river had another kind of fork that had dried up. So there was a big, big ditch about half a mile or so behind the Roman line and he just stuck 2,000 guys in there.
1: And no one noticed.
0: No. And they were behind the Romans. God. Oh, gosh. The Romans didn't know this. All they knew was that they had Hannibal outnumbered and maybe pretty well outnumbered in infantry. They also know he had more cavalry than than they did and probably better cavalry. Remember, their cavalry is just rich guys who just got horses from some of them. Mm -hmm. So the game plan was to crush through the center of his army with their great infantry before his... Charging horse guys on both sides could beat out the Roman cavalry and come in from behind. Because the last thing you want is people coming in behind your army. It's really hard to but get. But
1: they, they—they have not noticed two thousand guys or whatever in the riverbed. They're already there.
0: Already there. So they're not set up for success. No. But now put yourself back in that army, Carrie. I'd At- rather not. As the column advances, the men uh, bang on their spears. This is the Romans and the Gauls. Everyone is banging on their spears and yelling and trying to look as big and scary as possible to the guys um, marching toward them from the other side. Mm -hmm. This isn't like a run or a gallop. This is a march. They're trying to stay in formation, but they're probably not very good at it once they're really marching, especially if the ground's uneven.
1: Okay, but an important question. They're making their big debut. What do the Romans think about their first sight of the elephants?
0: We'll talk about the elephants, but uh, it's not the first time Romans in general have ever met elephants. But it's the, first, but it's the first time most of the people on this battlefield, most of the have Romans seen one in person. on this battlefield, yeah. yes, have seen an elephant in person. They know what an elephant is. It's not like they think it's an alien, but it looks like an alien. Mm-hmm. How could it be so big? Um, these elephants may be slightly smaller than uh, a, a, the African elephant you might see at your local zoo. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or, you know, the elephant you think of. These are about eight feet tall, still real big. And they, mm-hmm. and they may or may not have had wooden towers built on their backs for uh, soldiers to stand in and uh, throw javelins down from.
1: Eight feet tall seems like a small elephant.
0: It is a small elephant.
1: Why were they so small?
0: It's just a different species of elephant. Mm. It's just uh, just a little smaller. Mm. Um, so I don't want you to... But, but still, eight foot tall elephants. You got 15 of them on a side. The Romans were freaked out. The cavalry were very freaked out, but the Roman cavalry was never going to charge those elephants in the first place. So that didn't really come into play.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What did come into play is that the infantry were freaked out yeah. by the elephants. And that meant that even though the Romans had a much bigger army and, like, uh, more guys, and their line was longer as they were marching. They're not exactly feeling confident. And they literally started funneling and crunching in everyone marching toward the center of the Carthaginian line so they didn't have to go anywhere the fuck near those elephants. Mm-hmm. But we'll get to the actual clash in a moment, because first, carry those. you're a soldier, you're marching toward... Remember, they have to throw these javelins. So you're marching up toward these screaming, shirtless, uh, uh, leather pants-wearing Opie's. hmm And when you get about 15 meters away, you would... I, Adrian Goldsworthy says they they must have stopped the march, like stopped marching toward each other, and then everyone pulls out their javelins. They, they typically had two of them. And uh, throws both of their javelins, just kind of blindly, mm-hmm. you know, up, up and over, trying to hit someone in the enemy army.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, And meanwhile, a whole rain of javelins and sling stones and maybe arrows are are coming back at you as well. Um, But Goldsworthy says it might not have been like a controlled volley, and especially for the Romans, not at this point, because remember how badly trained they all are, Mm -hmm. uh, or untrained. Whether all soldiers waited until they were within the most effective range before throwing their pilum or javelin is highly questionable. Modern studies of combat suggest only a minority of soldiers actually fired their personal weapon during a firefight, and that even fewer did so with care and took trouble to aim. Both sides had been yelling for some time, nervously watching as the gap separating their own and the enemy's line grew narrower. Shouting helped them to fight against their fear, but the urge to do something to strike at and frighten off the approaching enemy must have been overwhelming. Throwing a missile at that enemy was the best way of striking at, and perhaps driving off, the foe.
1: Sounds terrifying.
0: And imagine how scary to be. You're still advancing toward this big group of guys, and it was already scary before, and you're probably shouting not just to, like Goldsworthy kind of hinted at there, not just to scare them, but to convince yourself that you're big and scary, and that you're not about to die. Mm -hmm. And now you're doing that, and missiles are are flying at you as you're launching them uh, forward. He says, at first, probably most of them dropped short or lacked the momentum to drive through the wooden shields that protected most of a man's body. But later, as the distance separating the two lines narrowed, some of the missiles began to strike home with greater force, punching through shields and perhaps even helmet or armor. Men crouched behind their long shields to gain as much coverage as possible, the Romans doubtless walking forward with heads bowed as if walking into a wind in the timeless posture of infantry advancing under fire. The majority of wounds were probably to the unprotected lower legs. That's why you have that grieve, carry. Mm-hmm. and occasionally to the face. Mm. Now, like I said, they were funneling into the center of the Carthaginian line as they marched forward. Uh, partly because everyone was so scared of those elephants.
1: Now, here's a question. I was thinking of giant, like, okay, I'm, re- I know, I'm stuck on the elephants, but I was thinking of like they were really big elephants, and eight feet. I mean, what's your typical room height, like 10 feet, 9 feet ceiling?
0: Yeah, a door is about 8 feet, usually.
1: That's not going to crush a guy unless he's already down.
0: Well, but a horse could crush a guy.
1: A horse could trample a guy.
0: Yeah, the reason cavalry is scary on a battlefield is because horses are big and scary. But I feel like,
1: I don't know, 15 Against thousands of people? Like, it's probably not very likely you'd get stuck under an elephant. I mean,
0: he's eight, f- he's eight feet tall at the shoulder. And no, I think the ceiling in here is about eight feet. Well, no, this is a this is a raised ceiling. The ceiling's probably nine feet. Um, still. And they're they're eight feet tall at the shoulder? They are big, scary animals.
1: Yeah, but I feel like their legs are like
0: half of their body,
1: right? Because mm-hmm. like, they're pretty bulky. So, I don't know. I feel like it would be pretty easy to avoid being under one of 15 elephants on your side.
0: I think you're... Unless
1: you're, like, already in that area.
0: I think you're partly right. And I think that Hannibal and the... It just seems
1: like so much effort to bring all these elephants over.
0: I know. And I think they're (laughs) mostly kind of enforcers. Like, they're mostly, hey, (laughs) don't come around the... Because Hannibal doesn't want this bigger Roman army to encircle his, right?
1: Yeah, I can understand the, the deferring that the elephants do to, like, horses. You know, kind of, like scaring the horses away so the cavalry can't um, surround them, but
0: Uh, I don't know. A big point of conventional ancient wisdom in warfare was uh, horses hated camels, too. So if you wanted to fuck up cavalry, (laughs) you'd bring camels.
1: Because the horse is like, it's like me, but not
0: existential horror. That's what Herodotus says. I don't
1: know. Okay.
0: So now, with that Roman line funneling inward, it was time for them to finally come into contact with the Carthaginians for real. And um, Goldsworthy, I love uh, the way he paints a picture of what this must have been like, because it's a little funnier and more human than you would expect. Um, He says, the charge across the last few meters separating the two sides was accompanied by increased shouting and culminated in the noise of shield striking shield. But it is extremely unlikely that men ran straight into each other hoping to barge into and knock their opponents over for this risked losing their own balance and a man on the ground during a melee was immensely vulnerable. Attackers began the charge at a run, but if the defenders stood or advanced to meet them, it seems that both lines checked their pace and then walked or shuffled into actual contact. They would only accelerate their running charge if the enemy gave way before them and it was a question of chasing and striking at their helpless backs. Um, and then he says once you actually came into line, it was basically a bunch of individual fights between guys. Mm-hmm. With you trying to kill the guy in front of you so that you and your friends could surge forward into that gap in the line and try to try to route the other side. Um, but he says just like the skirmishers, uh, a majority of these guys would have been fighting a little bit and mostly trying to stay alive. And meanwhile, a a small minority would have done a lot of the actual fighting and killing, and another small minority would have been trying to edge toward the back of the formation so they could escape as fast as possible when it broke bad. Mm -hmm. And then you're involved in a, just your shield on shield with a, again, big shirtless guy in leather pants. (laughs) Uh, He is trying to slash over your shield with his big uh, flat slashing sword. And you are doing your best to duck behind that shield, never really expose any skin, uh, but still stab at him from around your shield and around his shield, trying to get the vulnerable parts, his legs. Um, the only There's way Probably
1: you- a lot of arm and hand injuries, too, at this point. Even, like, broken fingers and stuff, if they hit you with the butt of their sword or whatever.
0: The, it, Goldsworthy talks about this, where... Um, if you wanted to like try to be heroic or murderous, I guess, and stab someone in the chest or the face, it meant extending the right side of your, the whole right side of your body past your shield. Mm -hmm. And now what's going to happen to you?
1: Three other guys are going to try to stab you from the side.
0: Yeah. So the archeological evidence suggests people didn't go for big killing blows that often. Um, because the dead from these battlefields usually have like a ton of small injuries mm-hmm. and then one finishing blow, presumably after they fall to the ground.
1: Uh, and it's so brutal and horrible.
0: It's hell on earth. That's why I wanted to do this story. I do think ancient combat's worth understanding because it's so scary.
1: Yeah. I just, I don't understand how people could have done it. I mean, I just, it's so awful.
0: Uh, Well, the idea would be to step into the dead man's place after you killed him, and that way you're pushing your line forward. But Goldsworthy says, This was highly dangerous for, for you, the person stepping in, now risked attack from the men to both the front and sides in the second rank of the enemy's formation. But it was also the best way to begin the enemy's route. Because all of a sudden you're starting to see guys die to the left and right of you. All of a sudden, there's Romans on the left and right of you instead of the Gauls who were fighting with you a second ago. The only thing that was making you feel safe is basically starting to evaporate. Mm -hmm. And once men lose that feeling of safety, a lot of them don't really want to be here in the first place. They have to be here. And they start to panic. Yeah. And Goldsworthy says it was at this stage in the fighting when a unit turned and fled that most casualties occurred. Men in flight lost the vital protection of their shields and the victors were able to strike freely at their backs. The sight of enemies who until recently had proposed a direct threat to them, turning their backs, seems to have encouraged a majority of soldiers, the ones who fought with the intention of staying alive, to act aggressively and expunge their fears in a one side massacre of all they could catch. Hmm. And so for this reason, the casualty numbers in ancient battlefields are crazily lopsided, where the losing side will lose 30%, 50%, 70% 30%, 50%, 70% of the army. Right. Because they're chased down and slaughtered and the winning side will lose almost never more than 5% of its guys.
1: Yeah, I guess after you hit a certain point you just keep on you know making more kills.
0: And and near the Trebia as the Roman infantry broke the outnumbered Gallic line The Roman center, 10,000 of these Roman guys, totally lost their minds, uh, lost their order, and just charged right through the center of Hannibal's army to chase his fleeing Gauls across the field. Mm -hmm. Um, To give you a sense of this, Goldsworthy says, It appears it was not uncommon for the attackers to strike repeatedly at the fallen enemy so that as many as seven or eight massive cuts were delivered to the skull, any one of which would probably have proved fatal. The savagery of such attacks on already defeated enemies is a powerful reminder that battles, especially hand-to-hand battles, are not fought by calm soldiers fighting coldly, carefully, and logically, but by frightened, vulnerable, and emotional human beings.
1: Yeah. And they're doing this, you know, going against orders and stuff, and they are surrounded they feel like they're making big moves.
0: These um these Romans? Yeah. Well, they've uh, they've blown right through the other the other side of the army. They're not yeah. surrounded by anyone.
1: But they are because there's the guys in the in the river that they don't know about.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, their army is still surrounded, but these guys are now leaving the army behind as they yeah. chase the fleeing Gauls. And that's the thing when you're involved in an infantry melee like this, you don't know what's going on, except that there's a guy in front of you screaming at you, mm-hmm. and you want to kill him before he kills you.
1: Yeah.
0: After they were done glorying in the slaughter of these uh, these hot, shirtless, bearded guys, R.I.P. The ten thousand, you know, victorious Romans turned around and realized they had already lost the battle. Uh, Hannibal's fresh cavalry. The, the Romans had marched all the way up up here to meet him, but his guys had just been hanging out. So they sent the outnumbered Roman horses on both wings running with like basically no fight at all. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Mago came out of his little drainage ditch, and um, the Romans were surrounded on all sides. The elephants uh, were used to devastating effect in the final stages of the battle as they trampled through formations. Uh, the Romans managed to kill a few of Hannibal's. Elephants, but but they struck terror into formations and sent the Romans into disorder. Um, and the ten thousand infantry who had broken through and were now watching all this happen were the only ones who were able to escape. As the rest of the Roman army, close to thirty thousand men, was either killed, captured, or scattered. Hmm. And so, as both armies settled into winter quarters at the end of 218, Hannibal wasn't looking any weaker. And more tribes of Gauls were flipping to his side. We'll see what the Romans do about it after the break. Oh boy. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home. Welcome back. When last we left you, the Romans had been embarrassed at the Battle of the Trebia, Um, This was supposed to be a big battle they were luring Hannibal into to uh, kick him out of Italy before he could uh, get more Gauls over to his side. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And it uh, did exactly the opposite as a Roman army was basically destroyed. And uh, Hannibal started flipping more and more tribes over to his cause. And then Hannibal, uh, I mean, people didn't really do war in the wintertime. It was too cold (laughs) in ancient times. (laughs)
1: Hey, I get it.
0: So uh, after that, everybody kind of went home for the winter. Mm -hmm. And in uh, Rome, a new year, as the calendar flipped over to 217, meant new consuls. And that meant new generals in in Rome. (laughs) You know, you elected two presidents every year. And they were also the the field generals of the army for some, you know, for some reason. Mm -hmm. So the newly elected generals both led their armies north. And they figured they were going to block Hannibal's only two routes south from where he had camped for the winter. And as they marched, they were appalled to see farms and villages burned throughout the Italian countryside um, because Hannibal had told his men to be especially brutal laying waste to the uh, local farmlands. Because it was both economically devastating and super uh, emasculating to the Romans. Mm -hmm. So the consuls, Flaminius and Geminus, were both too weak to face Hannibal on their own, but they figured with their army together, they had built an even bigger army this year. And together they figured they could uh, smash him no matter what tricks he pulled. Mm -hmm. They just had to make sure that uh, whichever army was attacked by Hannibal got reinforced by the other army. Because they knew he had to pick one of these two paths. The only other way Hannibal could have moved south was over the Apennine Mountains. And then over some really brutal, hard, marshy country uh, north of the Arno River. And there was just no way Hannibal would be that crazy. With all of his guys and he still has a couple of Elephants they were starting to die at this point From malnutrition and um, Like not so much from the fighting But from malnutrition and probably some diseases They'd never encountered um, But still the guy's got elephants and, and tens of thousands of men He's not going to do this mm-hmm. So uh, they camped out the other two routes And of course Hannibal went over the Apennines And through the Arno marshland And this march may have made him Pine for the good old days Back in the Alps Because uh, this is a truly brutal and horrible march. The marshland? The marshland. Land is is a strong word. Because for four days, we're told, Hannibal's whole army, 50,000 men, marched through water that was at most times hip deep.
1: They had to go this way?
0: They had to go this way if they wanted to surprise the Romans, Ooh, yeah, said it's, Hannibal. Yeah,
1: it's a surprise. No one in their right mind would do this.
0: Well, think about it. You're marching through hip-deep water. You can't sleep because you can't lay down or sit anywhere. Mm-hmm. So they continuously marched for four days. Uh, you couldn't stop to go to the bathroom, so they were all just kind of doing it uh, in the water as they walked, which means if you're at the back of the army, you're walking through like 50,000 guys' filth for four days
1: and they're not wearing tunics they're wearing pants so
0: well the gauls are yeah the gauls <laughs> are in trouble here uh i think the spanish wore tunics and yeah. uh, uh i don't know what the numidians wore under their uh, armor and stuff hmm. livy says that uh, all suffered grievously especially from the impossibility of getting sleep on a continuous march of four days and three nights through a route which was underwater but none suffered so much or lost so many men as the Celts. It's because of the pants, carry. Uh, most of his beasts of burden, also slipping in the mud, fell and perished, and could then only do the men one service. They sat upon their dead bodies, and piling up baggage upon them so as to stand out above the water, they managed to get a snatch of sleep for a short portion of the night. Another misfortune was that a considerable number of the horses lost their hooves by the prolonged march through bog.
1: Lost their hooves?
0: Yeah, it's just too much. You're not supposed to march through water for four days straight, apparently. So most of the horses lost their hooves. Oh, my God. Uh, Hannibal, for his part, apparently got an eye infection, and the doctors were like, I don't know what we can do out here. And so Hannibal cut his own eye out. (gasps)
1: During this?
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, Hannibal himself was with difficulty and much suffering, got across riding on the only elephant left alive, enduring great agony from a severe attack of ophthalmia, by which he eventually lost the sight of one eye, because the time and the difficulties of the situation did not admit of his waiting or applying any treatment to it. Um, Libby doesn't have the cutting out thing, but th- some versions of the story. So
1: he basically got pink eye from this shit bog. Yes! And... And he's like, "Well, there goes, there goes the eye."
0: Yeah, and it said he, there he was riding on the only elephant left. Hmm. So I do kind of agree that it wasn't worth bringing these poor guys across the Alps because they only did anything in one battle.
1: Yeah, and it sounded like they were doing fine without it.
0: They were. They were great in that battle. <laughs> um, anyway he had moved his 50,000 or so man army into Etruria, which was the rich farmland that the Romans really didn't want him to be in. And so Flaminius came over from that middle route uh, to stop Hannibal doing his thing, burning farmland, pillaging villages, and uh, flipping tribes. And when they marched into the area, Hannibal led them into a narrow plain between some hills and the shores of Lake Trasimene. Mm Mm-hmm. Hannibal made a visible camp, so the Romans were like, oh good, he's camped on the other side of the pass, cool. And then at night, he secretly marched his whole army, uh, without anyone noticing, up onto the hills above this narrow pass. So the Romans got started for the day and thought they were pursuing the Carthaginians through this pass, but as they basically got halfway across...
1: Trixie, Trixie.
0: Yeah, the Carthaginians just came charging down the hill at them. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Not the horses, they had no hooves.
0: Yeah, the horses, well no, the horses aren't doing any charging anymore. Um, But the Romans never had a chance to organize a fighting line here. They just had to turn in a panic to see a bunch of guys coming down the hill and try to hold them off with their swords for as long as they could. Uh, The legionaries apparently managed to fight for three hours Mm. on the shores of this lake, but they were outnumbered two to one by the Carthaginians. And 15,000 Roman soldiers died on the spot. Oh, my God. Many of them drowning in their heavy armor as they tried to swim across the lake to safety. And Flaminius, the consul, was also killed in the fighting, which was double bad. You really didn't want to. It's like losing one of your two presidents. Sure. He just started. Uh, Livy says, distinguished by his armor, he was the object of the enemy's fiercest attacks, which his comrades did their utmost to repel. Until an Insubrian horseman who knew the consul by sight, so this is a Mm Gaul, who knew the consul by sight, his name was Ducarius, cried out to his countrymen, Here is the man who slew our legions and laid waste our city and our lands. I will offer him in sacrifice to the shades of my foully murdered countrymen.
1: It's pretty metal.
0: Digging spurs into his horse, he charged into the dense masses of the enemy and slew an armor bearer who threw himself in the way as he galloped up lance in rest and then plunged his lance into the consul. There's a famous painting of Deucarius, not plunging a lance into Flaminius, but beheading him Hmm. uh, if you want a fun image of that or possibly a great album cover. Always. Uh, 10,000 more Romans were captured as well. Uh, the other consul had tried to reinforce Flaminius, like, wait, you might be going too fast. <laughs> but he only managed to get 4,000 of his cavalry into position and too late to help, and they probably had never even heard of the disaster before they were ambushed and killed to a man. Oh, God. And now... But not the con- the other consul. No, not the other consul, because he was still with his infantry all the way across the country. Yeah. So now Hannibal had gone from being a threat to a disaster. He had destroyed basically three consular armies in two years. And and one of those was, or two of those were like double-sized consular armies. Mm -hmm. And
1: one consul.
0: Um, And and destroyed a consul as well. Uh, The Romans had this big red button that they could push in times of emergency. What do you mean? I mean, instead of, uh, so Romans, the worst thing in the world was having a king. Hate having a king.
1: Oh, is this a metaphorical button?
0: Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, they didn't have an actual button. (laughs) Well, that's what I was confused about. (laughs) No, yeah. So, so, uh, they were... (laughs) That's what I said. (laughs) What do you mean? Uh, I I mean a metaphorical big red button. Okay. The Romans were obsessed with power sharing, so so nobody could be a king. Yes. So, that's why they had two consuls every year, and that's why they could only serve for one year at a time. Mm -hmm. But in times of real emergency, when you needed somebody to get shit done... You could elect a dictator for six months. That's where we get the word dictator from. And this dictator would be both consuls. He would just get to, you know, lead all the armies. Now, why is that better? Because it's hard to, as we'll see later in this story, actually, it's it's hard to make decisions. It's harder to make decisions as a group than as an individual if you have to make them fast.
1: Yeah, but he's a group of. It's a group of two, though.
0: Yeah, I know, but literally the way the Romans did it when the consuls went out together to lead armies Mm -hmm. is one of them would lead the whole army one day and the following day the other one would lead the whole army and then the next day the first one again. And they might have totally different plans and disagree about how to conduct the war. Okay. So, and everybody's super ambitious and wants everyone else to be worse than them in the fighting.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So it's... It's more efficient for a little while if we can risk the power problems that come with having one guy be in charge. Hmm. And so in 217, after the disaster at Lake Trasimene, the Romans turned to 58-year-old Fabius Maximus as a dictator. He was a... Big Fabes. Big Fabes himself. He was a distinguished senator, and uh, they didn't pull out this dictator thing that often. They were pretty scared of it. In fact, uh, he had to ask for special permission to ride a horse as dictator because there was like an old law that he wasn't allowed to. Um, but under Fabius's leadership, Rome spent the rest of the year completely avoiding battles with Hannibal. Mm-hmm. They just always followed his army, constrained where he could go and where he couldn't go. A little bit. They didn't do much to do that, <laughs> honestly. Um, but they would harass his foraging parties. And Fabius also told all the commoners and the farmers to take all of their edible stuff and um, maybe even burn their farm, and then get behind the walls of the nearest city. So his plan was to starve Hannibal out.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Slowly let Fabius's army get stronger, slowly let Hannibal's army get weaker, until he could lure Hannibal into a trap, go into a battle that would actually be uh, good on good terms for the Romans. It's mm-hmm. the only kind of battle the Romans want to fight. Um, but the Romans were not happy about this. And Fabius got ripped on for this whole six-month period. There were no battles during this time. Just right, so
1: they're just, like, running around, and people are like, where's the action? And you're just making people, or telling people to burn their own houses down. It's it's a big ask.
0: They called him Fabius the Delayer. <laughs> oh, burn. Uh, even better, uh, some uh, some critics called him Hannibal's Pedagogus. Uh, and that is after—that's what you called the slave who would follow a Roman schoolboy with his books. Wow! So that's a sick bird.
1: Libraries open, man.
0: But modern historians, even by like Polybius's time and Libby's time, those catty historians we read from last week, mm. um, Fabius was already seen as having been the wise one like this was the right strategy everybody was wrong at the time they shouldn't have doubted him Mm -hmm. and in fact when the romans start getting aggressive again they'll get open themselves up to even more disasters because over this six month period he bought the romans time to build their army back up to fighting strength without trying to get into another um badly matched battle with hannibal Mm -hmm. but they were impatient and over winter 217 the Senate massed all of its resources behind a campaign against Hannibal for the following year. A total of 80,000 men were levied and put under the command of the two new consuls for 216, Paulus and Vero. Their army would march together, which, like I said, Carrie, meant that one guy would lead on one mm-hmm. day and the other guy would lead on the following day. Um, and I'm sure that won't, won't lead to any problems. No, never. And they had plenty of time to get ready for that campaign of 216 because Hannibal didn't leave his winter quarters that year until probably June. And then he started moving south through fertile Apulia, Mm. more nice fertile lands Hannibal can raid and pillage and burn as he goes. Um, The consul from the last year was still shadowing Hannibal, but he had orders to wait for the big shiny new army with the two new consuls before he did anything. So he could only watch as Hannibal marched his 50,000 men to capture the town of Cannae with no resistance. Hannibal would settle down there for a couple of weeks at least and seemingly just wait for the Romans to come. Mm -hmm. And the Romans did come, and Cannae is where they would suffer their greatest, probably their greatest military disaster of all time, Mm -hmm. and certainly the greatest victory of Hannibal's life. Um, I promise you, Carrie, it is a horror show. Okay. And the aftermath it leads to for the Roman people, uh, in some ways, just as horrifying. Oh. So uh, all that to look forward to. And furthermore, I'm of the opinion Carthage must be destroyed.
1: <laughs> Are we, we're doing this next week, three-parter.
0: Oh yeah, I yeah. I, at this point, we're gonna have to. I my plan was to get through this today. I got too excited, honestly. Talk <laughs> talking about the uh, uh, infantry clash, Carrie. Oh, well, it's very exciting. It ate too much time, and uh, and now here we are. But I hope that was uh, that flew by for me. I hope was that scary.
1: Yeah, it sounds terrible, and I don't want to be there.
0: <laughs> okay, excellent. Uh, uh, ne- <laughs> so mission accomplished. Next week, uh, I know I promised this last last week, but next week the true horror. Uh, As we cover the Battle of Cannae, and then uh, very briefly, I guess, gloss over the rest of the Punic, Second Punic War. (laughs) All righty. But what do you think, Carrie? You want to, you want to be a Roman soldier? I literally said I
1: would kill myself instead. (laughs) It sounds horrific. It really does.
0: I didn't tell you about the rations. All right. It's like 80% wheat. I'm done. I'm
1: not, I'm not doing it.
0: killer podcasts and slow burn media production subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows
1: it's true crime time this week we have a semi-rare thing an official update on a case we've covered previously on the main show Longtime listeners will remember that almost two years ago today, we released episode 71, which covered the case of her Baumeister.
0: Oh, yeah, I hate Herb Baumeister.
1: Yeah, it's a creep. Uh, more than a creep. Baumeister was a serial killer in the Indianapolis area during the 80s and 90s. He exclusively targeted gay men, luring them back to his home from local gay bars, and then strangling them to death, burying their remains on his 18-acre property known as Fox Hollow Farm. hmm The remains are still being identified to this day. They're comprised of 10,000 at least separate pieces of bone fragments belonging to various missing men. Police have estimated at least 25 victims had been buried on the property. It could be more. Baumeister himself is long dead, having committed suicide as the police closed in on him in 1996. But since his death, nine victims have been positively identified including a new one just this year, Sean.
0: Just this? Really? Yes.
1: On January 25th of 2024, Indiana's Hamilton County Coroner's Office announced that Manuel Resendez had been identified from the remains as one of the victims of her Baumeister. Hmm. Forensic experts are, quote, continuing to process remains for DNA comparison, Hamilton County Coroner Jeff Jellison previously told People Magazine. People reports that back in late 2022, Jellison had asked the family members of men who had gone missing in the area during Baumeister's spree to submit DNA samples to the coroner's office to see if their relative had possibly been a a victim of Baumeister. One of the people who submitted at the time was Eric Pranger, whose DNA helped identify his cousin, Alan Livingston, as one of the victims in 2022. At the time, Pranger told USA Today that, quote, I am a ball of emotion right now. I am happy and sad. Happy he was identified and sad that it happened. The newest identification of Manuel Resendez as one of the victims came in a similar situation after a family member submitted a reference sample early in 2023 to the coroner's office, leading to Manuel's eventual identification. Resendez had been missing since at least August
0: of 1993. So 20 years. That's unbelievable. 30 years, sorry. (laughs) Well, I'm glad those people have some peace, but obviously it's cold comfort
1: yeah and that's pretty much i saw the uh, facebook um post that the coroner's office made to announce this which i'm going to quote in a minute but actually eric pranger who i just mentioned um, commented on the post and basically said you know feel terrible for the family but at least they have some closure just like we do so it's very interesting to see how people are kind of brought together by this really sad coincidence that you know their family members were involved in this case um, in the post uh, it said quote i would like to thank the entire team of law enforcement and forensic and forensic specialists that have come together to support this effort said coroner jellison um, a special thanks goes to the hardworking people at the Indiana State Police Laboratory and Dr. Krista Latham of the Biology and Anthropology Department at the University of Indianapolis, who doubtlessly helped in the identification. So we do send our condolences to the Resendos family, and we hope to hear of more identifications made in the future, because it seems like, I don't know, at least half of the victims still have yet to be identified.
0: Unbelievable! That Baumeister was uh, one of the worst, one of the He's... least likable that we've covered.
1: It's not even, yeah, not, that, um, not
0: that any serial killers likable.
1: But he had like zero charisma. He was just like really creepy. Like they're, you know, I mean, they they all are, right? But um, he was just a slimy, creepy dude. And um, you know, I'm glad some of these families are getting closure
0: now. Rest in piss, Herb Baumeister. <sighs> For sure.
1: That's it for this episode of ain't it scary with Sean and Carrie like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at ain't it scary and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain't it scary. You can call us and leave a message at our Google voice number 203-66-5529. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five star review on Apple podcasts and Spotify. We'll be forever grateful.
0: We certainly will. And special thanks to those of you already joining us on our top couple of Patreon tiers. Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Compy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, Kate Pope, Haley, Ryan, Enrique, Ira, Pete, Anna, Delaney, and Sue. That's a lot of you. Thank you very much. Uh, You are our spooky family.
1: See you next Thursday.
0: Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb.
1: Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media.
0: One of Scotland's most notorious unsolved murders. To think that someone could turn a cheese wire into a grot and take someone's life. The level of violence, the uncertainty, and the randomness frightened people. She always thought the killer was going to come back after her. Society needs to find our killer. Who is the cheese wire killer? Listen to the Fool series now, wherever you get your podcasts.